Okay, we got another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast, and we're going to continue breaking down the NHL draft. We're looking at the Atlantic Division this week, and we've brought on Dauber Prospects, Tony Ferrari. Tony, thanks for coming back. Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed it last time, so I was happy to come back again. Excellent. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you typically follow the draft? What does draft day normally look like for you? Well, for me this year, it's a little bit more intense. Most years, it's just sit in front of the TV and, and tweet about it on my phone and whatnot. But this year, I was doing a lot more with Dauber. And so I, was, I had my laptop and I had my TV going and I was tweeting out and posting articles and trying to do everything I could to, to keep things up to date. But it was a busy day, but uh, it was a ton of fun, except for the second day that lasted about 45 hours. Yeah, I was uh, fairly thankful to be at work during the second day because that was, it seemed like it absolutely stretched on forever. I was struck by how substandard the product was this year. And I, I get why that was the case, but it just, it didn't have what it normally does. I, I do commend the Ottawa Senators for uh, doing what they did, uh, bringing on Alex Trebek and who is Tim Stutzla because that was uh, that was entertaining, but otherwise there there really wasn't much for fireworks in that draft. Yeah, like the, the presentation I, I knew was going to be a little bit substandard for this year, but that Ottawa Senators pick, and, and I kind of looked at it and I was like, oh, that's a really fun thing to do, have Trebek come on and stuff. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, well, maybe maybe that wasn't exactly how the pick to go because Trebek is, is a University of Ottawa grad, so that's why he made the pick. But he's also from Sudbury, Quentin Byfield played, so... I think they kind of had hoped that maybe they'd, they'd have that little uh, connection as well. But yeah, I mean, that was easily one of the better moments of the, the production was at least from the draft class or from the draft this week year. So it was a, uh, it was a weird one that was long and stretched out on day two, especially. Well, it was interesting to have the longtime jeopardy host make a pick for a team when through the whole draft, Corey Pronman's just tweeting out every pick before it comes up like Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day when he's watching Jeopardy on the TV and he knows all the answers. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Like I, I see, I wasn't really following Corey because I was so busy the first night and then someone had mentioned it. So I pulled up his page and I'm like, oh, sweet. I can get a little bit of a head start on, on tweeting out these profiles and stuff. And so it, it helped me, but I know a lot of people were, were annoyed by it. Yeah, if I was the NHL, I would definitely be reaching out and shutting that down. I know what happens in the NBA draft all the time. Yeah. Woj and Shams are competing to get those out. But when you're undercutting your product like that, it just seems not valuable. And, and I would be reaching out to try to shut that down. I, I would be fining teams for releasing that information. Yeah, it was a weird situation because like, you don't want the, the picks leaked, especially when, when all Corey was doing and in credit to Corey for getting the information. Right. But like all Corey was doing was Detroit picks this person or LA picks this person. So it wasn't like there was any pop and circumstance or anything to it. So I'm sure the NHL wanted a little bit more hype going into each draft pick with, and with everyone kind of knowing what was coming. It, it, it kind of undersold the already kind of long production. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great flex by him, but I just, it's not what I wanted. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you do draft grades? How do you go about kind of assessing the process of, uh, of what teams did? 
Well, it's 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 always weird to me when I see full on draft grades for every draft class and and especially when you start expanding it to the later rounds. So this year I kind of decided, you know, what, I'm, I'm not going to grade every team. I'm not going to like harp on teams too much for some of the picks that I really didn't like, because just because I like them doesn't mean they're necessarily a bad pick. And in five years, I'm probably going to be wrong. Let's be honest. So the the thing I did this year was I, I decided to put teams on a podium. I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll give out a gold, silver and bronze for the three draft classes I liked most. And then I'll give a few honorable mentions. I won't harp on anyone too much. And Yoki and I did the the draft cast and that's out today, uh, this morning actually. So um, you can check it out too, where we kind of, we went a little bit more negative on that side when we, we got to some of the picks we didn't like. We, we talked about some of the risers uh, and fallers from the draft and guys that maybe shouldn't have been drafted where they were, but uh, generally I try not to harp on it too much because yeah, like, like I said, three, four years from now, maybe this prospect had a, a really good two, three years post draft and, and maybe he looks, he looks stupid. So I, I try not to harp on picks too much. There were definitely some picks that were a little questionable in this draft. It's such a delicate balance because this is like the best moment of, of all these players lives or, or close to, and then you come out and you're like, yeah, the bad pick, right? Like it's, it kind of, it kind of sucks to go that way, but it's also, you want to make fun of the teams because that's the, I don't know, the most entertaining way to assess this stuff. So I can't wait to dive into the draft cast and, and get, and get all the negative vibes, but we can stay positive on here if, if, if you don't want to go there. But uh, like I mentioned off the hop, we're going to take a run around the Atlantic and I think maybe we'll start with uh, the Ottawa Senators who did have the Alex Trebek pick with uh, Tim Stutzler at the top. And they had, they very well could have owned this draft. And I don't know that they did, but they, they were close to it. What did you think, Tony? Yeah. Like, the Ottawa Senators were a weird one for me. Cause I really liked what they did with the first, their first pick with Tim Stutzler. He was my favorite player in the draft. He's got so much speed and skill. Like this kid's going to be an NHL player. It's just kind of where you really project him. And for me, I project him more as a winger than a center. So I, I think he's going to play left wing in the NHL. It's going to be really exciting. It's, it's going to be a great pick. I think that pick was a mistake at all. Um, Jake Sanderson, I, I can justify that pick. No problem. I, I, for me, he was right there neck and neck with Jamie Drysdale. I, I could flip-flop him on either day as the top defender in the draft class. Um, so I, I wasn't up really too down on that pick. I know some people were feeling like they left some value on the board with Marco Rossi and Cole Perfetti still available, but I was fine with that pick. I, I like the fact that they were able to kind of bolster their back end while bolstering their, their forward group as well. Where I think it started to fall off the rails for them is kind of towards the end of the first round when they drafted Ridley Grieg, who's a good player. I like Ridley Grieg. I, I think he's uh, a guy that can play middle six minutes in the NHL and he'll bring a lot of energy and he'll bring some tenacity um kind of like that Blake Coleman vibe kind of comes off him where he's not necessarily the biggest guy but he's a feisty guy he'll fight you he'll, he'll get into the battles but there's a lot of value left on the board I felt like at that point and, and that's kind of where the rest of the Ottawa Centers draft class went is I feel like they they got good players like I'm not I'm not against drafting a guy like Robbie Arventy or Igor Sokolov but I felt like they left a lot of draft capital on the board and then the, the move that really kind of stung for, for Ottawa Senators fans, and I know me, myself, I, I was not a fan of this trade at all, was when they traded up with Toronto for the 44th pick to, to choose Tyler Clevin, and they sent back the 59th and the 64th. Um, I, to be completely honest, I think both the players that Toronto got were better than Tyler Clevin, and I think Tyler Clevin was a guy that I probably wouldn't have drafted anywhere inside the top 100. 
Um, he's a big mobile defenseman. He can skate. Um, that's kind of where it ends, though. He he's a lot of raw player there, and, and there's going to be a lot of work to get him to kind of where he needs to be to really be uh, an NHL level player. Yeah, it's so interesting with the trade ups and and the pick value and that sort of thing. I think if you look at just the sheer pick value that was exchanged, I'm sure they came out on the losing end. And then you take a player that most people were not projecting to be as, as high in the draft as he ended up going. And you can see how they really lose value there. You've taken part in the redraft process with me and there, there have been times when teams have done really, really well with trade-ups, but I think that there's a point in the draft where it turns from being valuable to being suboptimal. I know, Everyone remembers the Leafs trading up for Tyler Biggs and then the Anaheim Ducks end up landing Ricard Raquel and John Gibson with the picks that they gave up. And that would really suck for Ottawa to have a division rival pull something like that on them with this trade back. And the potential is there, but I mean, we may not know for another seven years. I wanted to gear in on uh, Ridley Gregg because I haven't seen the player play beyond just looking at YouTube clips and stuff like that, but looking at the statistical profile, I do wonder he profiles as someone tracking to be a top six forward, but most people don't think he's going to end up there. So I wonder what the disconnect is. I think Ridley Gregg, it's just, I don't think he has the, the high end skill or the, the real, like he doesn't have a standout offensive talent that, that kind of puts him in the top. Most of the time in the top six, you have a guy who's either a really good playmaker, a really good goal scorer, or a guy, if he, he may be able to fill like a, a Zach Hyman type role in, in a top six where he's the guy that's just the, the energy, the battling in the corners and stuff like that. But I don't think he's ever going to be the guy that puts up 60, 70 points. Like if you want a top, top line guy or a top six guy to do. I think he's probably going to be a guy that settles in more about that 40 to 50 range, which, which isn't bad. If he's your second line left winger or even like a, a third line center, that's, that's an election for that, that, that role he's going to play, but he just doesn't have that, that high end skill set or that high end shooting ability or anything like that. He's good at all of it. He's a good shooter. He's a good playmaker. He's excellent in the corners. And, and that's where I think he, he excels. He plays a feisty game. He's going to, be the dog on the bone that gets the puck back. But I, like I said, I don't know if he's that, that guy that really drives the line in any sense of the word. He's more of the, if he's the third best guy in your line, it's probably a good line. But if he's the second or first best guy on the line, your line may be struggling. Right. And I guess the question would be, is there a best player on the line type player that was available? And I think you would suggest that. Yes, there was. Yeah, I definitely think there was like, even you look at, other some of the other drafts in the division um look at a guy like Jan Myshak who was drafted 48th by by uh Montreal or even you go to Toronto's draft class and they drafted Ronnie Hervin and Topi Niemela both those guys are, are more projected to be higher in talents than really great so it, it's one of those situations where I think they got a good I, I don't dislike the player by any means um if you get a guy like John Jason Paterka, who Buffalo drafted seven picks later, I think you're getting a better version of the same player. So I, I think you're, you're missing out a little bit on, on the high end value, but I think there, there is some kind of, 
assuredness knowing that you're getting an NHL player when you're drafting Ridley Grigg. So you mentioned a few more Atlantic teams. Maybe we'll shift over to Toronto, who was their draft strategy just we're going to be the Lilliputians or what were they doing there? Yeah, I think the, the Leafs kind of stuck to their guns. I know they said this offseason they want to get bigger and tougher, but I don't think the draft is the, t- the, the place to do that. I think the draft is where you get – you go for your high-end talent, just taking swings in the middle, mid to late rounds. And and why draft a guy in the fifth round that you think is going to be a, a third liner? You can draft a guy that maybe has a chance to be a second liner or a first liner. So I think Toronto did a lot of that. And with a lot of that, they got a lot of smaller players. And you, you look at some of the heights and weights of some of these guys. And I think the biggest player they drafted was their, was William Villeneuve, their really mobile defenseman in the fourth round who – He's not going to use his size at all. And his size isn't massive by any means. He's only 6'1", 175. So it's not like they, they had a, a couple of behemoths in this draft class. Everyone was pretty small and skilled. So Villeneuve, he's kind of like, uh, his size is kind of like those guys who just work out to, to put on show muscles and they don't, they, they skip leg day and it's not very functional. Yeah, that's pretty much spot on exactly what it is. He's he's an offensive guy. He has all the all the the drive to go on offense defensively he's pretty disinterested and, and his structure is really kind of wonky but um, he was the kind of guy that like they drafted him at 122nd that's a swing right like you, you draft he was one of the highest scoring if i'm not mistaken the highest scoring draft eligible qmjhl defender so if you're getting him at 120 122 in this in the fourth round end of the fourth round that's how you pick in my opinion so i think toronto kind of took that you know what, we're going to let the players fall to us and we're just going to take the guy with the most skill and the most upside. And I think they did that for a lot of the picks. It's very much that new school baseball strategy. I'm, I'm striking out or I'm hitting a dinger and there's no in between. Yeah, that's kind of what it was, right? Like the first round they draft Rodion Amirov, who's who's a, a six foot, 177 pound Russian forward. He plays left wing. He plays with a lot of flash and skill. He's kind of a guy that I think he doesn't get the credit for, for his offensive game and he doesn't get the credit for his his ability to kind of win those battles in the corners. And like I said, he's not he's a six foot 177. He's not going to come in there and crush a guy along the boards or anything like that. But he's going to be able to use his body position. He's gonna be able to use the, his strength on his feet. And then he's going to be able to outskill a player in the corner to pull the puck free. So I think Rodion Amirov is a really, really good pick at this point uh, at 15. I had him at 12 on my board, so I was really happy with that pick um he I, he's he might he has a real chance to be a top 10 player in this draft class and, and there was a loaded top 10 this year so yeah i love the swings that they made i'm i very much agree with the strategy of, of swinging for the fences because when you do hit one then then suddenly it's going to be very exciting for you do you think amirov would have gone this high if this draft happens in june the way that it normally does um I think he probably would have been in this range for sure because he did play in the KHL last year. He didn't produce at all, really, but he he played in the KHL, and that's that's a lot to do for a young player, especially a draft eligible player. So I think there there was some some hype around him, and I know like talking to a few different teams and talking to a few different scouts and stuff, he was a guy that was kind of anywhere between twelve and and twenty five on most draft boards. I'm sure there was other teams that had him lower, like even in the first round, even so. Um, the Russian factor is real. So I think there's a chance that he maybe fell, but I think he probably still goes in this range. Interesting. 
Yeah, it seemed like he was starting to trend up public draft boards right around when we found out that we weren't going to be having the June draft right in that uh, that pause that we had. And then it, it just seems like the return to play just skyrocketed him even more. Like I was not surprised at all to see him in the top 15, whereas I think that Russian factor might have played more of a factor uh, if we have that June draft. Yeah, because he, he's had a good start to the KHL year this year. He's He's been producing a little bit. He's putting up some, a, a few points here and there. So I think he, he's starting to show he's more comfortable with it. He's starting to show that he's more physically ready to take on that challenge. And I, I think this is a guy that Toronto drafts and they go, you know what? We just traded Janssen. We just traded Kapanen. This is a guy that can replace those guys with the high, with an even higher skill level probably than either of those two players. And he can do it maybe next year. Um, I, I don't necessarily think it's ideal for him to jump into the Leafs lineup next year, but um, if he has a good year in the KHL, I don't see any reason to hesitate to at least give him a shot. And what's his contract situation? Are you aware of uh, where he's at on that front? Um, if I'm not mistaken, he has a contract through 21-22. So that might hold him up a little bit. But I think there might be a an NHL out clause. I know a lot of teams have those, or a lot of players have those, sorry. Um, so I, I wouldn't be shocked if he was kind of, going to stay in Russia for a couple more years. Cause like I said, he doesn't necessarily need to jump into the lineup next year. So um, he's a guy that I think he has the talent. He has the skill. It's just going to be about when he goes. And uh, actually his contract runs through next year. I just checked. So yeah, okay. he, after next season or this season coming up, so he can come over to the NHL if he's ready. So um, I, I think Toronto, they, they got good value at that pick. Yeah, I've been hypothesizing that we might see a lot more players make the leap just because there are going to be some leagues. We don't know if the WHL or OHL are going to be able to go this season. It sure doesn't sound like they are. So there's going to be a lot of prospects without homes. And there's all these teams that are trying to ratchet back on salaries and there's no better salary than players on their entry level contract. So I think we're going to see a lot of these guys sooner than we might otherwise. And maybe that also speaks to some of the talent at the the top end of this draft. And also, I think it just, I think that there's going to be a push to see some of these players sooner rather than later, even though you go back even as far as 2016, 2017, and there's some players who went in the first round who we still haven't seen yet, just because there's going to be, whenever they can get fans in the stands, there's going to be this push to get exciting players out onto the ice. Yeah. And I think the big, the only real kind of roadblock in the way of that is, is the European players. So most of the European players have kind of started their seasons. So your Lucas Raymond, Alexander Holtz, um, Anton Lindell, most of those they won't be able to come over. They kind of, they've, there's been an agreement that they're all staying over in Europe for this year. Um, they're not even going to be coming over for training camps, if I'm mistaken. So um, guys like, like I said, Raymond uh, Holtz, some of the top end guys that you thought maybe could fill those roles, they might not get the chance to, because they're not just not going to be allowed contractually to come over uh, due to the COVID situation. So um, I think some of the guys that could be getting those looks are, are Alexis Lafreniere is obviously going to be in the NHL. Quinton Byfield's probably going to get at least a look. I think Marco Rossi, the reason he hasn't signed a, a contract in Europe is for that reason. He wants to try to push for the NHL this year. And on a, on a Minnesota Wild team, kind of bereft of talent, he, he might be able to fit in right away. Um, another guy that I, I kind of intrigues me a little bit is, is a little bit further down the draft board, and that's 
uh, Braden Schneider, drafted by the New York Rangers. He, he was rumored to go to Toronto kind of early on in the draft process when Toronto got that 15th overall pick. But I, I, was, I was happy with the Rodi Mirov pick because the, there is a lot higher upside and everything. But Braden Schneider is closer to NHL ready than most players in this draft. He very good defensively. He plays a mature style of game. So if he isn't playing for the New York Rangers, even if he gets like that 10 game stint or nine games at the start of the year, just to see where he's at, I wouldn't be shocked at all because he's got the the frame. He's got the physicality that he can play in the NHL. Now it's just going to be about seeing if he's up to speed with the game and that might be where it holds him back. Yeah, I think a lot of the WHL and OHL players are going to get those nine game tryouts if nothing else. And I think maybe they'll spend a whole lot of time in the press box and getting practice time if they don't have anywhere else to play. So it could be a bit of a trial by fire for them. And then those teams eventually talk themselves into giving those players more minutes as the season wears on. But as we saw with Kirby Doc this year, you can really make those strides towards the back half of your draft year. Even Steven Stamkos, when he was drafted in 08, I remember he famously had really a very poor, at least statistically, first season in the NHL. But you saw by the last month or so of the year, he was starting to get those minutes and the production was starting to come and he was already making strides. So it, it may take a while to get those players up to speed, but eventually I think a lot of them would get there. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the key to it too, right? Is there might be a lot of guys that spend some time in the press box this year. And and with the, the NHL wants to have as many games as they can for next season. That's that's stayed a bunch of times. Everyone knows it. And at the same time, they're also going to be probably starting in January. So the reality of the situation is you're going to have a compressed schedule and you're going to have a lot of games in a short period of time. These guys might be the perfect option to, you know what? We have a guy like Braden Schneider. He's sitting in the press box three to four nights, but when we're playing four games in five nights, something crazy like that, he's going to get in on the back end of both those games or both those two, two game sets. So I think this might be kind of the season that teams are more able to work in these rookies. And I wouldn't be shocked. If we have a big glut of rookies that have anywhere between 30 and 50 games played or, or 50 around 50% of the schedule played because they're going to teams are going to need those cheap contracts. They're going to need the extra bodies and, Entry-level deals are just the best way to fill the, the, those two needs. So I think there's going to be a lot of teams that have some rookies that play about half the schedule. Well, and speaking of half the schedule, you mentioned the European guys are not going to be able to come over until their seasons are done. But with the January start, could it happen that halfway through the NHL season or three-quarters of the way through the NHL season, suddenly all these players' seasons are done over in Europe and they just slide right on over? Yeah, it's certainly a possibility, especially the ones like like Amirov, who has contract up at the end of the year. Um, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they join, especially because, like I said, the Leafs or the the NHL season is going to go probably a little longer than like later into the year than we're accustomed to. Maybe not as late as this year. I, I hope we're not having playoffs in in early October, but um, I wouldn't be shocked to see playoffs in in Jan or July. So if these teams kind of get their seasons done and in Amirov and Raymond, and these guys are done their seasons in May, late April, I wouldn't be shocked if they come over for the last few games of the regular season, kind of similar to what a lot of college kids do when they, they finish their college year, they come over, they play the last few games of the season. And then if they're good enough, they play in the playoffs like Cal McCarr did a few years ago. So I, I think we could definitely see some, some youth injected in these lineups late in the season. 
So Detroit, they took Lucas Raymond number four, and I, I'm pretty sure you had him. Was he number three on your list all year? He's been number three on my list since before last year. I love Lucas Raymond. So for me at four, he was a no-brainer pick for me. Yeah, and I've heard lots of player comparables can, can be really bad, but I've lo- heard lots of Mitch Marner comparisons for kind of the, the size and the skill comparable. Yeah, I think Mitch Marner is a good comparison, but the, the comparison that I've kind of been using lately is our Panarin. Just because of the way Panarin kind of drives his line from the wing, and I see that a lot in Lucas Raymond's game. I think he's a guy that you can put him with a center like maybe Joe Valeno, who isn't necessarily the most high-end offensive center, but he's got a good two-way game, and, and he can complement whatever player is driving that line. So if you have a guy like Lucas Raymond driving from the side, having a second-line center like Joe Valeno might not be a bad option because – if, if Detroit has the, op- the opportunity to kind of maybe make a kid line of, of Zadina, Valeno, Raymond at some point in, in the next couple of years. And, and that line could be a lot of fun because their skill sets really mesh well together. And I think Lucas Raymond's just, uh, the, like I said, for me, he's been the guy all year. Um, there were times early in the year and, and towards the end of the year when he started playing again this season where in my, my mind, I was like, man, this kid might be closer to Quentin Byfield at two than whoever we kind of have at number four. And I just love the kid's talent. He's a good skater. He's not necessarily the fastest North South guy, but he's got incredible agility. He's got incredible edges. Um, his ability to just kind of cut to the middle on a dime and just blow it, leave a defender behind is pretty remarkable. Like he's done it at the SHL level a few times this year already. Um, his shots noticeably improved. He's bigger. He's stronger than he was last year. Um, I think this was a really good opportunity for Lucas Raymond because he did get those few games in before the draft happened. So it kind of gave teams that maybe were on the fence and maybe were like, oh, should I go with Lucas Raymond or Cole Perfetti? Seeing Lucas Raymond make those improvements that, that you kind of wanted to see him make over year gave him that opportunity to really rise up the draft boards in, in the private sphere as well. Yeah, that's interesting because obviously after the result of the draft lottery, Detroit fans were pretty despondent about what had happened, even though, well, Iserman was despondent, but he knew that this this was the most likely outcome for them. And then to get all the time that they had to really hone in on what a lot of people think is an elite talent is uh, it's a bit of a stroke of luck because even when you bottom out, you aren't guaranteed anything. Yeah. And I think like, every Red Wings fan was, was upset with the draft lot. And, and even myself as a non Red Wings fan, I was like, man, you got to give it to the 17 team. Like they did nothing last year. They weren't good at all. And when you looked at the wings, a lot of it wasn't even that they were just bad because they were tanking. It, it was bad because they had a lot of contracts that were hampering them down, like the Ablocator deal and in the uh, Nielsen deal and stuff like that. So they were kind of just bad because they were bad. It was, it was the result of being good for three decades almost. Um, I almost felt like, you know what, Detroit almost deserves that first overall pick. They didn't get it, um, but they get Lucas Raymond, who, in my opinion, this might be a little bit of a hot take, but if he was in this draft class, I, I think both him, Lafreniere, and Byfield would all have been the, fir- the would all be the favorite to go first overall next year. Whereas I think a guy like Tim Stutzel, he's probably in that that same range. Cole Perfetti, he's in the same range of of is he in that group of, of first overall talent? Because next year's draft, there isn't a a surefire number one, so they'd be in the conversation. But I think if if Raymond Byfield or Lafreniere there next year, any of them would be kind of the favorite to go first overall. 
Yeah, next year's draft class is is one I'm kind of fading, but uh, I'm sure we'll get excited about it um, <laughs> coming closer to draft time. Detroit, did they just only scout Sweden this year, or what happened there? They they ended up with a couple more uh, Swedes in the second round. Yeah, I think Yoki was the one that tweeted it. He's like, hey, guys, like other teams are allowed to draft from Sweden. Because like for a while, no one was doing it. It was like Detroit was just drafting, drafting, drafting. And, and they got some good Swedes. I, th- I think William Wallander's a high upside pick. Um, he wasn't my top, even, even my top Swedish defenseman on the board, but he was a guy that I liked better than a few of the other defensemen that went in the first round. So I was more than happy with this pick. Um, William Wallander's a really, he's, he's a big boy. He's 6'4", 191. He skates like the wind. He's, he's really good in transition. I think he needs to clean up his game a little bit at both ends of the ice. He needs a little bit of refinement. Um, the one thing I always kind of point out with him, though, is when he went up to the SHL level from the Super Elite, the, Ju- the Swedish Junior League last year, he was actually much better defensively at the men's level, playing in a more structured system. And, and kind of when I noticed that, I started to go back and watch some of his junior games as well. And it, the, the Moto defense was just a dumpster fire. They had no structure whatsoever on the junior team. So when he got into that environment where he wasn't necessarily the guy and he wasn't the, the only person trying to play defense at times, it worked out a lot better for him. He had a lot better results. And I think William Wallander is a good pick in this range. Uh, Theodor Niederbach, that was a, a fun pick. I, I like that pick really a lot. Um, getting him in at 51 in the second round, he's a good power forward kind of house there. Um, I think he's probably a winger at the next level. He's not necessarily the biggest guy. He's 5'11", 175, 180. But he, he's strong in his edges, and he knows how to kind of put his shoulder down and protect the puck. I, I think this is a really good pick. He's a guy that I, I project as a middle six guy. Um he can score goals. He's got a good shot. He, he's a decent playmaker as well. So I think this is kind of like he projects as like the ideal third, second line center, second line winger. Um, he's a, I love this pick in that range. Like they, they just banged out three Swedes at the top of their, their board. And, and I, I loved every one of them. Yeah. I really needed Wallander to be the seventh defenseman drafted in the first round. And he slipped just outside and so I, I lost my overbet for the defenseman, which was very unfortunate. I haven't seen the kid play, but just looking at the scouting reports and stuff like that, I'm getting like extreme Philip Broberg vibes off of him. It just without the steam of getting driven up to the top 10 of the class because people watched him at the World Juniors and fell in love with his athletic traits. And honestly, that might be the best comparison I've heard because I think Phil Broberg played a lot of the same style. He has a lot of the same strengths as William Wallander. The difference was Broberg got drafted in the top 10 and Wallander got drafted the first pick in the second round. And with Broberg last year, I felt like he was a guy that probably could find decent value in the, in the 20s or even if, if he falls to the second round, that'd be an awesome value. But teams were enamored by that, that size, skill, skating package. And with Wallander, I think there was just other guys that they, they became enamored with. Who who maybe had a, a bit more of a raw skill set like like a Shakir Makamadulin who was picked by New Jersey which was kind of fun to to see but I think William Wallander's probably a better prospect than that and he's got all the same size skating uh, ability and, and there's a lot less refinement that William Wallander's going to need to make over a guy like uh, like Shakir Makamadulin so uh, I love the pick in the second round Philip Broberg's a really good comparison and. Like I said last year, if Philip Broberg got drafted a little later, I'd, I'd love the pick because there's a lot of upside and it's a great swing. And I'm always a guy that likes to take the swing. 
top eight wasn't uh, wasn't what I was loving about Philip Broberg, to be completely honest at the time. But it looks like he's he's trending to be a reasonable pick. I'd still rather have Trevor Zegers, but uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Speaking of defensemen with these tools, Montreal takes Caden Gooley in the first round, and we knew someone was going to do it. And I, I think I think Montreal fans and, and prospect Knicks in, in general are a little bit disappointed with that pick, given the high upside forwards that were on the board. But you touched on them taking Meshach, and I just I wonder if those picks were just reversed, if we wouldn't be a little more satisfied with their draft. But if if they reverse those pick, then we wouldn't have gotten back to back Tuck Meshachs. Oh my God! Part no. about the Montreal draft. No. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> um, but no, honestly, like you said, if you flip those two picks, if Meshach was going at sixteen and Caden Gooley went at forty-eight. I, I'd be fine with it. Like those, those picks in my mind would be perfectly reasonable to be reversed. So I, I don't mind get drafting Gooley where they did. I'm not a Gooley fan. I've been kind of on the record with that all year. In my opinion, he was more of a, a late first, early second round guy. You're getting him at 16. You're, you are getting that, that raw skill set. He's a guy that's more, that's a good skater. He's more than willing to, to kind of step up and engage. Physically. I think he, if he gets to Montreal, he's another guy that I think, would play a few games this year in the NHL. I think if the WHL doesn't really get going in the Q or in the NHL does, this is a guy that could be that guy that I said plays 50% of the games that they play in. And he gets to learn under Weber and learned under guys like Petrie and stuff. So I think he's in a good spot for what he needs because he's a guy that is that raw kind of that he's that ball of clay and they need to mold him in Montreal with a guy like Shea Weber there to kind of, him what to do and and they're not too far off uh size profile wise so i think Caden gooley's in a good spot even though i didn't love the pick at the time i think montreal should have let someone else draft Caden gooley and then in 10 years have given him just an obscene ufa contract to be their fourth pairing defenseman or they could give him an obscene contract and send to the AHL like Carl Alsner. <laughs> exactly. That was the uh, that was the trend that I was uh, I was trying to poke fun at. Listen, Tony, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come back from Tuck Mysack, but uh, <laughs> we'll try here. Um, you mentioned Buffalo ending up with uh, Paterka in the second round, but I'm not sure that they got maximum value out of Jack Quinn in the top ten. What did you think of their draft? They were a little bit meager on picks after taking those two in the top 40. Yeah, they had those two in the top 40, and then they didn't pick again until 131, where they took Matteo Constantini, who's he's a guy, he's the OGHL guy, not probably not a pick I would have made, but it's the fifth round, late in the fifth round, so it's not really a big deal. But yeah, like you said, the Jack Quinn pick was was questionable to me because I don't dislike Jack Quinn. I, I've been kind of labeled a Jack Quinn hater all year because I'm the guy that's had him lower on my board than most people. Um, I, I finished the year with him at 23, I think. Uh, the Dauber Prospects Award had him at 21. So for him going eighth, it just value wasn't there for me. I, the Buffalo Sabres kind of walked up to the Zoom podium and they were like, from the Ottawa 67s, and I went, yeah, finally. Yeah. Buffalo's kind of making a smart pick. They're going with Marco Rossi. And then they said Jack Quinn, and I'm like, oh, that's not even the best prospect from his team. And again, Jack Quinn does a lot of good stuff. So I'll start with that because he's, he's a good shooter. I think his total is, his goal scoring total of 52 is inflated this year a little bit. Um, I think he's got a good shot, but not a 52 goal shot. 
but 50 goals in your OHL draft season, you can't complain about that. You're not going to go wrong there. But I think he gets a little bit too much credit for his goal scoring and a little not enough credit for what he does in the puck. I think he's a decent defensive player. I don't think he's a great defensive player. I don't think he's going to be on your penalty killer or anything like that, but he holds his head above water, certainly in, in defensive situations. I like what he does anticipating the puck and in doing kind of movement ar- around the offensive zone and in, in, without the puck and stick. I think he's a really smart player in that sense. He's got some pretty good hockey IQ in, in, in my opinion, but again, it was just that, there was so much value left on the board. There was Marco Rossi and Cole Perfetti who went with the next two picks. And I think both those guys are, are much higher intense. And I'd even argue they probably have a safer floor than, than Jack Quinn because Jack Quinn went from 12 to 52 goals from, and he did not produce a ton of points the year before. And he jumped up to 82 this year or 89 this year. Sorry. And again, he had way more goals than this, which is always a, a little bit of concern for me when they're close. I don't usually mind it, but uh, seven assists if I'm not mistaken and 52 goals so there's a pretty wide margin there and I think that kind of again it's, it's one of those things that I'm like is that something he's just kind of dominating here because he is an older player for this draft class he's he, I look at him and a guy like Nick Robertson who Toronto drafted in the second round last year and they're only about 10 to 15 days apart in terms of birthday so I go would I have liked drafting Nick Robertson at eighth overall I, I like Nick Robertson a lot but probably not I probably would have had him in the 15 to 20 range as well so I think it was just one of those situations where Buffalo fired their entire scouting staff and then they went to the, the elite prospects page or something and went, Oh, 50 goals. Holy shit. This is our guy. And it, it just, it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, man, Buffalo had an opportunity to kind of get a really good piece to, to throw in the, in the lineup with Jack Eichel, because if they after the Perfetti this year, I think there's a realistic chance that they put him on the wing with, with Jack Eichel and the high IQ of both two guys would have been insane. And now that we kind of see Taylor Hall going there as well, just that Cole Perfetti, Jack Eichel, Taylor Hall line would have been ridiculous. And and I think Cole Perfetti would have been able to at least keep up in terms of his, his mindset. Uh, the skating would have been concerned with him, but man, like I just think they miss on a lot of value there. I just look at the statistical profile and like you mentioned, did very little as a 17 year old. And then as an 18 year old, his numbers balloon. And I guess, is there, is there enough there that, you think that the jump in production is justified for me i look at a guy like i compare him to a guy like uh dylan holloway who who's drafted by the edmonton oilers at 14th overall and i go okay a lot of the knocks on dylan holloway were well we we didn't see what he could do this year so we, we relied on what he did last year kind of and, and a lot of teams kind of felt like this wasn't the dylan holloway we were seeing I feel like with Jack Quinn, it was almost the opposite. Everyone was like, oh, well, th- this is definitely the real guy now that he's scored 52 goals. And, and they weren't paying attention to anything he did pr- prior to that. So I, I think it was a situation where, I, again, those 52 goals look really, really good on the stat sheet. Um, trying to justify not taking the guy who scored 52 goals at the OHL level in his draft year is maybe a lot of some teams think that's a, that's a galaxy brain idea, but you passed up on Marco Rossi, who led the entire CHL, including Alexis Frenier in points. He had uh, over 120 points. Um, Marco Rossi was on, on 146 points in the OHL if they finished the season, if he played a full season. Like, that's ridiculous. That's a wild season. I, To me, he was a top five prospect. I had him in my top five uh, basically from January on because the kid was just so good. So him dropping to nine was great value for Minnesota. And then Cole Perfetti, he had over 100 points as well. And, and Jack Quinn, like I said, the 52 goals is great. Cole Perfetti has a better shot. 
Marco Rossi has just as good a shot. So I think Jack Quinn, like I said, a 52 goals was a little bit inflated, but man, like Buffalo just doing Buffalo things, I guess. Well, yeah, with Perfetti, didn't he have a comparable scoring season as like a 16 year old to what Quinn had as an 18 year old? Yep. Uh, it's pretty, pretty close. Um, he had 37 goals as a rookie. And then this year he had 37 goals in a year that was shortened by just missing games because of the COVID virus. And, and then uh, there was a couple of games, if I'm not mistaken, he missed by injury as well, but he finished over hundred points. He, he matched his 37 goals from his, from his rookie season in far less games. So I think this is a guy that has as much shooting talent or more, and he, there's just so much more dynamism in his game. So I think I, as much as I love the John Jason Paterka pick in the second round, that's uh, I think that's a great value there. I think they missed out on a lot of value in the, in the first round with Jack Quinn. Yeah. I think that there's some bad things tend to happen in the first drafts that teams have after they fire their GM and it, it doesn't always work out for them that they do well in that first draft, especially when the firing happens at the end of the year and the team has to kind of scramble and it's not necessarily, they keep the scouting staff on or they fire the scouting staff and it's not really their guys making the pick. And suddenly it, uh, it goes a little bit sideways for them and takes a couple of years to really figure out what their organizational philosophy with this stuff is going to be. You think back to Yarmo Kekalainen, what he did in his first couple of years with Columbus, not some great drafts. And then since then, they've been really nailing some mid-round picks and stuff like that. And they've got maybe the best goalie pipeline in the NHL. And they've they've really rounded into, into what they are now. And it wasn't working out for them at, at the very start. So I wonder if we don't see that here in Buffalo. But hey, they won free agency. And it's not like Quinn wasn't, rated as a first rounder so they, they probably got a player they're just I, I think we both think that in very short order we're going to see Perfetti and Rossi make that pick look a little bit bad yeah and that's just it like I, I always feel bad when I'm ripping on on this pick because I think that Quinn is a better player than than a lot of players in this draft class and if he was drafted where Dylan Holloway was drafted at 14 I think that'd be an awesome pick um, even though that's higher than what I have him on my board I I think there's a more than enough reason and justification for drafting him outside the top 12, probably. Um, there was a pretty locked in top, top 11, top 12 group. I think they just kind of, they just, they should have just went with the guy that, that makes sense and Marco Rossi or, or even Cole Perfetti and, and they didn't. So uh, yeah, it's not that Jack Quinn's a bad player. Like I said, I came up on a lot of, on him a lot this year. It's just, kind of one of those things where you look at a team and I think we look at the Ottawa center the same way and you go, man, you just missed out on value at so many different points. And, and I think that's where we look at it. But again, like I said, at the start of the podcast, there's a very good chance in three, four or five years, we're both wrong and we look silly on the podcast. So hopefully no one listens to it then, but right now it, it was a, a bit of a questionable pick. Oh, I'm, I'm bringing this back up in five years. If Jack Quinn, makes me look silly because I've been I've been kind of ripping on just the the age adjusted scoring and stuff like that as as kind of a, a red flag so I'm excited to see him prove me wrong because I'm all about that oh yeah like I'm more than happy to retweet this out in four years when Jack Quinn puts 50 <laughs> up in his third season in the NHL or something hell yeah um so you mentioned there being kind of this this solidified top 10 
and Florida picking just outside of that, they end up, I don't know, just, just kind of waltzing into Anton Lindell at number 12. What did you think about their draft? I think Florida was in a, in a great spot because every, every year we kind of have a top 10 that's, that's fairly solidified and this year is no different. And I think this year is the gap between the top 10 or 11, 11, if you include Askarov, but he's a guy that a lot of teams kind of shy away from because he's a goalie. But so if you, if you kind of look at that top 10 every year, someone jumps up and with the assumption that Askarov was also going to be in that group, you kind of put the 12th pick at, at a really good point because then you just have to be, be the least smart guy in the room and just take the best player available. Whoever falls to you, whether it was Rossi or Perfetti or, or maybe Holtz falls to you, you take them. And, and with the Florida Panthers, they got Anton Lundell, uh, the best defensive center in the draft, uh, 200 foot player. I love this kid's game. Uh, I had him a lot higher on my board than some people. There was even times this year I had him above Alexander Holtz just because I think the whole impact that Anton Lundell brings to the game is, is really, really impressive. Uh, his 200-foot presence is, is unlike I've seen on a lot of prospects that I, I've, I've watched over the years. I, this kid has legitimate Selkie trophy can't, like potential in, in his game. And and going to Florida, he's going to be able to kind of talk to his fellow countryman, Alexander Barkov, and go, hey, how did you get to where you are? Where can I, I improve my offensive game in, in, like you did in your draft year? And, and let's see if I can become the same kind of player you are. And I think that's a great situation for him. Um, Anton Lindell one of my favorite players in the draft. So I was a big fan of Florida's draft. And, and then even later on, like they took some pretty good picks. Like I'm a big fan of Emil Heineman, maybe a little higher than what I would have taken him, but that's a third line guy that, that more than willing to engage physically. And he's got a really good shot on him. So I think Emil Heineman is a good pick. And Ty Smolenic, he's a guy that fell down the board a little bit. He's, he got drafted set fourth. I think at Dauber, we had him in the fifties or sixties. Um, but I think the big risk with him was he had a wrist injury all year that kind of hampered him. He was, he did take some time off because of, but even when he was back, like I remember interviewing him after a game and I was talking to him and he's just wrapping up his wrist right after the game, like rewrapping it. So he, he had that wrist wrapped a lot this year. So I'm, I'm not going to be shocked if he, he kind of shows up and, and kind of does what he does with it, with his offensive game. Cause he's got the skill, he's got the hands and he's had a really good shot coming into the year that shot was mitigated because of the wrist injury. So I, I think it's a, a pick that they're going to really look back on and go, Hey, we got some good value here. And then even looking back down, back down the board, like they had a lot of good picks like Casper Pudio, Michael Benning. Those were good swings to take on in the fourth, fifth round. And, and Justin sort of, I think that's a guy that didn't get a ton of respect in Vancouver this year, playing in the WHL. Um, he probably didn't have the season he wanted, but he's got a lot of physical tools to get there. He's a good skater. He's a good passer, good shooter. Uh, he just needs to kind of refine things and get things to, to all work together. At so if you can get that guy at 87th overall, I, I think that's a great pick. Yeah. Looking at sort of just statistical profile, he is trending towards that second, third liner type scoring range. So there's anytime you can get that beyond the top 50, I think you're getting a ton of value. I wonder with Lindell, is there, like you mentioned, he's got to kind of learn to add the offensive flair. Where, how high does the upside go? Like, does he max out at Miku Koivu or does he max out at, I don't know, Travis Zajac or something below that? Kind of my my thing with Anton Lindahl all year has been, 
if, if the worst case scenario, you're going to get Kovu. So you're going to get a really good defensive center who can play on your second line and, and really lock things down and, and be a leader in your, in your dressing room kind of thing. And if, if things work out really well, and I think they can, cause I, I think this kid's got a really good shot. I, I think it's legitimate 30 goal potential in his, on his stick. And it may not be every year. He may be a guy that scores 25 most years. And then every, every couple of years puts in 30 to 35, but the player I kind of look at and I go, man, this, this is a guy that I think plays a lot like, Ant- well, Anton Liddell plays like him stylistically and wise is, is Ryan O'Reilly from the St. Louis blues. We just watched him on a, a crazy cup run last year. Uh, he was one of the best players in the NHL playing in the playoffs last year. He was just done it. I think Anton Lindell has that in him. Uh, not a guy that you're going to be able to rely on every single night to be your driving force, to be that, that, that guy. But if, if Ryan O'Reilly is one of your best players, I, I think you're doing pretty good because he's, he's a guy that impacts the game in all three zones. Um, he comes up clutch and, and Lindell, Lindell's kind of got a lot of that profile to him. So I, I've been using it, uh, Ryan O'Reilly as, as his upside comparable. And, and when people ask me, okay, well, what's, what happens if, what happens if he bottoms out and he doesn't reach anything that we kind of think? And I go, well, then you get Miku Koivu, not a bad player. If he can turn into Ryan O'Reilly, that is obscene. No one will ever remember it, but O'Reilly against the Canucks this year in the playoffs was obscene. He was an ice tilting, absolute menace. He was doing puck control offensive zone stuff that just, absolutely flummoxed the Canucks anytime that he was off the ice and, and, and the goalies were not uh, providing much for the blues, but he was absolutely dominant in this year's playoffs as well. So uh, yeah, that, that's a very, very high upside, even though it's not, you're maybe not getting the obscene scoring, you're getting the absolute puck control and, and and craziness. So if, if that's the upside, then, then Florida could be a little bit scary here. Uh, What about Tampa Bay? it kind of felt like they leaned towards not taking as big a swings as they have in past years. Yeah. Tampa Bay is weird. So I did not like their first three picks at all. Um, Jack Finley, Gage Gunkalvis and Maxim Groshev. They drafted in the second, second and third round 57, 62 and 85. Um, All good players. They probably all went about 50 picks high. uh, Realistically. I, unless some team was like in their ear going, Hey, we're going to draft him next. I, I probably wouldn't have taken any of these guys in those ranges. Um, I do like a couple of the next picks they made though. They, they took Jack Thomas at 93, Jack Thompson at 93 from the Sudbury Wolves and Eamon Powell at, at 116. Uh, both defensemen, both kind of mobile guys. Jack Thompson's got a bit more of that offensive flair and a little bit more danger to his game. He's a risk taker. Um, this is probably a little high from when I would take him, but I like the pick in general because he's a guy that I'm like, man, if he goes to a good development system, uh, he could be a really good player because there's the skills and talent are there. It just needs to refine it. And Tampa's a good development system. They're always seeming to find the guy in the third round that works out. And maybe Jack Thompson's that guy. And even Powell, he's a guy that I've liked all year. He kind of, he was kind of the forgotten guy in the national scene development program for the U S under 18s. Um, he's a good skater. He needs a little bit of work on his in-zone defensive play, but against transitions, he's pretty good. And the thing I really that intrigues me about him is I think there's a lot more offense to his game than he's kind of shown re- like the, in the last couple of years because he was on the national team program, right? So they, they've got guys like Jake Sanderson and, and Brock Faber and even Tyler Clevin played ahead of him at times. So um, even Powell, he has a big shot. He, he was a monster whenever on the power play. 
you'd put him on the half wall because his shot was ridiculous from the from the faceoff dot. So uh, I, I think there's there's some offense in this game that that can be found in if any organization is going to find it, it's going to be Tampa. Uh, the other two picks I kind of liked was Amir Miftikov in the late in the late first round. He's an overage goalie, played for the Russia at the World Juniors a lot the, in the last few years. Um, he's smaller though; he's six foot, one seventy two. So he will have to battle through those size concerns. So that's why he fell to the, to the sixth round. And Declan McDonald is a guy that I I expected to go higher than two seventeen. He was the very last pick of the draft, uh, Mister Irrelevant, and he's a guy that played in the Kitchener of the OHL. He's a guy that I look at and I go, "That's a bottom six guy." I, I have no worries about him making it to the NHL and being a bottom six guy. He knows his role. He's got a good shot. He's he's. It's not like he's bereft of skill by any means. But he's a guy that kind of seems to understand his role, and he plays it really, really well. He was one of the best guys in the OHL, in my opinion, of projecting as a, a surefire third, fourth line guy. And if you're drafting anybody that makes the NHL in the seventh round, you're winning. So I think this is a, a great swing on in the, in the seventh round, even if you are limiting the upside with that pick. Interesting. Uh, Boston, did they even... Is there even anything to talk about there? Oh, I feel so bad because like Mason Lowry is a guy who I seen this year. I noticed him at times, but he was an overager and I didn't really pay too much attention to him because there wasn't really a popped off the tape to me. So when I was watching the Green Bay Gamblers, I was watching other guys. I was watching different players because Mason Lowry just wasn't it. And when he was announced, I like, I, Initially, in my mind, I'm like Mason Lowry. And in my mind, I'm picturing L-O-W-R-Y, right? Like most people's traditional spelling of Lowry. So I'm like, who is this kid? I don't even know who that is. And then I got like a bunch of messages. And one of the messages was from a Bruins fan that I'm, I'm pretty close with. And he goes, he goes, who the fuck is Mason Lowry? And he spelled it L-O-W-R-Y. And I'm like, honestly, dude, I don't know. And then once the, they, they, the, the, the other thing was, the NHL didn't even have his name in the database. It didn't seem because that pick took a long time to get up on the board. So even still, like we didn't know who it was once the spelling came up and I, I seen it was or L O H R E Y or R E I. Sorry. I was like, Oh no, no, I do recognize this player. I definitely know who that is. Why did they draft him in the second round? Um, if you wanted to draft him, that's a guy that I think you could draft later on. I think Boston went for a lot of the Boston Bruins type players. Um, Larry's a big boy, 6'4", 195. He doesn't mind getting physical. He's got some puck skills and he pushes the puck up ice, but I think he, he, his offensive game is kind of predicated on the fact that he is bigger and stronger than most players. And he's able to do a little bit more from the defensive blue line than, than you'd expect as a, as a defenseman. So I think it was a pick. I wasn't a fan of the pick. I don't, they probably could have grabbed him in the fifth, sixth, seventh round, realistically. Um, then they go on to Trevor Kuntar, and he's another guy. He's a Boston Bruins banging bruiser guy. He's he's gonna be that Bruins type player. You 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 look at him and you go, okay, that's a that's a Bruin. that makes sense. Mason Lebrun, same thing. Raleigh Duran, kind of the same thing. Like they went with their pretty stereotypical Boston Bruins players. They passed up on a lot of value, in my opinion. Um, every single one of these picks probably could have gone a hundred picks lower. Um, even the Langerbrunner and Riley Duran picks at 50, 151 and 182. I, I wouldn't be shocked if those guys were drafted around later even. So I think Boston, I mean, Boston's a good team. They they always draft well. They seem to find Jen in the rough. So maybe one or two of these guys work out and they, they look like geniuses. But yeah, I think there's a little bit of galaxy branding going on with these guys. 
they they always seem to find one or two late round picks that works out so I'm suddenly I find myself cheering for Mason Lowry because apparently no one had any idea who he was and that uh, that excites me uh, just as a story as a hopefully that's a chip on the shoulder and and really drives him to to having some success. Oh, for sure. Like if Mace, I want Mason Lowry to make the NHL. I want every one of these kids to make the NHL, but I definitely do want Mason Lowry to make it a little bit more because I would love like him and Igor Chinnikov and a few of the other guys that when they flash back to the Sportsnet panel or the NHL network panel, they, the panelists were like, uh, who? So <laughs> I, I, I want those guys to make it to the NHL even more. I, I want Chinnikov to prove every, I, I want him to prove uh, Yarmo Kekalainen right and, and make everyone go, Oh man. Man, that, that pick at 21 was a good pick. I want I want all of these guys to make the NHL because I love like the, my favorite part about the draft process is being wrong because I look at these guys and I go, man, what what didn't I see when Mason Lowry? So if he ends up having a good next couple of years, I'm going to be the guy that goes back and go, what what did I miss? Because there's always mistakes made. It, best, the best in the business are 30 percent. You're hitting 300 um it's not a not a game that you're you're looking to be 100 on so uh, i'm fine with teams taking risks i'm fine with teams going with their guy i just hope they work out no doubt you've got uh you've got the growth mindset there tony uh, this was very informative i'm gonna have to go back over it and make sure that i'm fully digesting what you said about uh, some of the depth prospects that i i really don't know from Adam. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Uh, you can just find me on on Twitter at the Tony Ferrari. My podcast is Dauber Draftcast. You can find that on Twitter as well. Uh, we just released our kind of draft breakdown episode. We decided not to go with the traditional, like everyone's doing for the most part, break down the first round and then talk about a few prospects you like afterwards. Um, but instead we kind of decided, you know what, we're going to take the rankings we had right before the draft that our scouting team came up with and the, the NHL draft and, and look at where we were way off. So we looked at a lot of the guys that fell in the draft. So we talked about a ton of guys like Jacob Perot and Maverick Bork who, and Tyler Tulio who, who fell down a little bit of the boards. And we talked, talked them up a bit and talked them up on, on why we think those guys are going to be good picks. And, and then we talked about some of the guys that, that maybe got drafted a little bit higher than our board and, and for a lot of those guys, it was easily explainable. Like there were, there were reasons that maybe we didn't like them, but we understood that other teams would like them. And then we kind of talked about some of the surprises like Shakir and, and Igor Chinnikov going in the first round and a lot of the other guys. So uh, there, there's a ton of prospects and it's definitely not the first round prospects that you're probably going to be used to. So it's basically, I think there was just over 50 players that we talked about from the second round on. So there's a ton of depth in there. So uh, it's an hour 45 minutes, so enjoy that. But yeah, than that, find me on Dauber Prospect. That's where all my stuff is. Well, good. You've given me more homework, Tony. This is uh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Happy Thanksgiving. I, I, I'm, I'm very thankful to have you here. Thank you. I'm thankful for you having me. It's always a good time to join you, Steve. All right, everyone. That is our podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to my fellow Canadians. And like, subscribe, review wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you on the next one.